Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than organising your life and keeping your Tamagotchi alive. What a stupid craze they were. My name's Ash Rose, your host on this journey back to the 1990s and a decade that changed football forever. Thank you for hitting that download button and welcome to the nostalgia trip as we once again venture down that 90s themed path of memory lane. And I have to say, what a show we did last week. I really enjoyed that. And uh, judging by your feedback on the show, she enjoyed it too. Uh, Thanks to the guests with some great stuff, big insight into the inner workings of magazines of the 90s with Paul Hawksby and Ian Cruz from 90 Minutes and Shoot and Andy Rayburn as well, giving us his view on magazines. It was a great show. And uh, you may have seen on Twitter, we put some covers and features from the mags we talked about on there. So I hope you enjoyed seeing those because they're full of my off they're in my office full of them so go back on twitter and have a look because some great covers including that classic 90 minutes spice girls cover which was brilliant uh, talking to twitter actually a shout out to nick gilbert um who showed us a great bit of 90s nostalgia on twitter today with that classic pro match annual some great character chores in the book that was called part of the card collection i think we spoke about in our stickers and collections pod earlier in the season those cards that were different to everything else because they were drawn illustrations of footballers they actually did an annual for a couple of years and i think nick dug it out of his loft uh, so do keep them coming as you love to see them what's what you've got hiding in your loft in your garage especially if it's something we have completely forgotten about it's rare uh, that we haven't thought about anything in the 90s but yeah do dig them out and also let us know if there's a theme you'd like us to cover that we haven't done yet because we've got a few more planned for at least uh, a few next few weeks uh, i think we've, we haven't done toys and games yet which is one i'm really looking forward to doing and of course euro 96 um which we'll do nearer the 20th anniversary which of course it's this year but we're always open to more themes and more ideas and uh, we don't want to miss anything out on this trip through football in the 90s 90s but we're gonna tonight we're gonna ride through and ride off the back of this week's international football and look back at another tournament it's not Euro 96. We're actually, as I said, saving that one until the last show to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the finals. My God, 20 years ago. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But we're skipping ahead to the 1998 and the World Cup in France. Yes, France 98. And for me, France 98, was, I think, to me, it was the first finals when football really started to explode uh, just everywhere. And World Cup fever was just everywhere you looked. Maybe, I don't know, maybe because England were back and genuinely had a chance winning the tournament more on that i guess later but it was just everywhere i mean the newspaper started doing supplements for the first time something we discussed last week uh, there was an england sticker collection as well as the panini album oh and by the way i bet you've got your year end 2016 one here because i have um there was a disc collection in golden wonders crisps i remember pg tips did a card collection and there was coins and there was a bp card collection an england photo series happy meals at mcdonald's it's just and it was just everywhere and of course I can sub them all, so I'm, I'll stick some examples on Twitter later. But yeah, for me, it was the first tournament that the world just went nuts when it came to tournament time. We're kind of used to it now, but I think that was the first time in the 90s, especially World Cup. And it, we were rewarded as well with another amazing tournament and another ver- a version of Free Lions, of course, and, and the emergence of an England wonder kid, which we will all talk about. And along the way, there was World Cup deputants from Caribbean and Africa, a host nation who looked destined to go all the way. And of course, one of the year's best doing what he did best until that mysterious events of the final. So before we get into all that, plus speak to someone who actually played at France 98, here's how you can keep in touch. You can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at AK90s. And of course, as I've said already, keep all your messages coming in. We have some great banter today online with one of our guests, actually, who we'll meet in a second, talking about France 98. So keep them coming. If you want to listen to any of the previous shows, uh, 28 now we've done. We're on show 29. Uh, They are available on the website, on SoundCloud, and of course, on iTunes. And as I always say, if you are on iTunes and you do love the show, and I know there's lots of you out there that do, which is we appreciate so much. 
just give us a little five star rating and a little review because it helps us tremendously in the charts and everything like that and helps spread the word of AK 90s. They'll be very much appreciated. Okay, let's meet tonight's guest then. And it's three newbies to the show, which is always fun. So let me firstly introduce editor of nonleaguedaily.com and Newcastle fan Mark Carruthers. How are you doing? I'm not too bad yourself. I'm very well. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, joining him, we have author of the excellent From the Back Page to the Front Room, Football's Journey Through the English Media. And he's a writer as well, Roger Domaghetti. Is that, is that how I pronounce it, Roger? Yeah, that'll do. Thank you oh. very much. <laughs> and who's your team? I hadn't asked you this before pre-pod. What, who do you follow? Uh, Leicester City. Oh, brilliant. Someone <laughs> who's very happy at the moment then. It's, um, yeah, um, it's getting tangibly, worryingly close. So <laughs> trying not to think about it too yeah. much. Well, we keep it 90s on this show, so you won't have to be too tense. But uh, And our last guest um, from the excellent Shoot the Defence podcast, give that a listen. Uh, we'll put that on Twitter later as well. It's your Man United fan, Michael Pieri. How are you doing, Michael? Hello, Ash. Hello, everyone. How are you? All good. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll get your CVs in just a second. But here's quite a few things, actually, that happened this week in the 90s. On the 31st of March 1993, Ian Rush becomes Wales' record goalscorer with his strike against Belgium, his 24th goal. And thank you for the retweet earlier, Mr Rush. On the 31st of March 1995, Eric Cantona famously attended a press conference and uttered the phrase, when the seagulls follow the trawler, it is because they think the sardines will be thrown in the sea. Very classic. On the 1st of April 1995, Sheffield Wednesday suffer their heaviest ever home defeat with a 7-1 thrashing from Nottingham Forest. On the 2nd of April 1995, Liverpool win the Coca-Cola Cup with a 2-0 win over Bolton at Wembley. On the 3rd of April 1993, Mark Bright nets the winner as Sheffield Wednesday beat rivals Sheffield United in the FA Cup semi-final. On the 3rd of April 1996, Liverpool beat Newcastle 4-3 in a game often described as the Premier League's best ever and one that you can hear us wax lyrical about on our Matches of the season, uh, matches, sorry, of the 90s pod. We had Roy Evans on that as well. Go back on iTunes and check that out. A few more. 3rd of April 99, Robbie Fowler celebrates a goal against Everton by sniffing the touchline. I'm saying no more. 4th of April 1993, Tony Adams' goal scenes Arsenal beat Tottenham in the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley. And on the 5th of April 1997, Paolo Wanchop scores in his debut for Derby with a wonder goal at Old Trafford. So let's start with Mark then. Uh, we'll get your CVs then. Your Newcastle player of the 90s, Mark. Um, <clears throat> it probably sounds as if I'm going to go obvious here and go with someone like Shearer, but I, I'm going to go Peter Beardsley. Um, mm. Just from the, the moment he came back to the club from Everton was just a, a genius. Um, as someone growing up and going into my teenage years, as Beardsley rejoined and hearing a lot about his first spell at the club, he was just, uh, I hadn't really seen anything like him before. And I always say this in the modern day, the only player I can compare him to is, is Messi in terms of uh, his playing style and, that's probably overblown Peter Paisley a bit, but uh, he, he was that sort of player, just such a, a clever footballer. Yeah, I think he's un- another one that I think looking back is a little bit underrated, isn't he? Yeah, he yeah. Was, he did so well at Newcastle and even earlier at Liverpool and Everton, and he did so well for England with Gary Lineker. I think looking back, I don't think people appreciated. I think because he wasn't a glamorous kind of guy, was he, Beardsley? Yeah. I think that's overlooked, isn't it? And I think the other side of it is, if you look at, as you just said, that he probably had a part in making Gary Lineker what he was. And and he certainly did the same with Andy Cole when he was in Newcastle. So maybe Beards is an influence, isn't it, in goal scoring? It's in, you know, creating with uh, for, for the top, top strikers or players who went on to be top strikers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good choice. And your favourite player outside of St James's Park? Uh, well, I've gone with two. I've gone with uh, one who never played in the Premier League, which was Roberto Baggio, who was mm. just, again, I use the word quite easily these days, it seems, but just a, an absolute genius. And, and that goal in Italia 90, I think, was yeah. against Austria. Um, 
it was just one of the greatest World Cup goals ever. Um, but then, of course, you know, throughout the 90s, just seemed to get better and better. Um, and in the Premier League, it, it's another Italian, uh, Gianfranco Zola. You can probably spot a bit of a theme here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not the tallest lad myself, so I seem to you know, migrate naturally towards the, the smaller playmaker-style players. And, and Zola was just unbelievable. The, the things that he did, he came over quite late on from from Palmer, obviously, and, and just... He seemed to take the, the the Premier League in his stride, and I think he won PFA Player of the Year in his first season as well. And just a, just a wonderful little footballer. No, yeah, he's one often talked about. A great great choice there, and the divine ponytail. We love him here <laughs> on AK Nineties. Um, let's go to um, Mike then. Um, your player of the Nineties for Man United. You've got a plethora of choice there, haven't you? Yeah, it was a great decade for us. Um, I'm going to go with the King, the Catalyst, the last piece of the jigsaw, Eric Cantona himself. The sardines and the trawler. <laughs> well, what a, what a great day to be talking about him. Yeah, he, well, he really, as you say, he was the jigsaw, wasn't he? I mean, he's, he's still King Eric now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, um, we're, we're at a period when we just missed out on the league in 92. And um, when, when Eric came in, it just all just fitted all together exactly like a jigsaw. And he also, because of his training regime and his dedication and his motivation and his personality, I guess, he brought on the young players as well when... You know, that the famous class of 92 owe a lot to him and they always eulogise about him. And, you know, that decade owes a lot, not just to Sir Alex Ferguson, but Eric Cantona was the, the playing catalyst for that team. Yeah, he's always, yeah, he's always a big, big choice on the, on this podcast. So yeah, I'm not surprised there's a good choice. Outside of Old Trafford, could you see anyone else in that glorious decade that you would rather see in a Man United shirt? Oh, oh definitely. I mean, in terms of the, the, the Premier League, um, I always love watching Dennis Burkamp. I thought it was a yeah. wonderful, wonderfully technically gifted footballer. But um, away from the Premier League, I've got to go with um, Ronaldo. I mean, we're going to yeah. talk about the 1998 World Cup. And I was fortunate to have seen Ronaldo several times live. And he was just an explosive, wonderfully skillful footballer. Simply brilliant. And we never, you know, however good he was, I don't think we ever saw the best of him because yeah. of his um, couple of knee injuries that he had. And obviously the incident um, at the 98 World Cup. But Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, the Ronaldo, he was just an incredible footballer. Yeah, I always say I think that if it weren't for injury, we'd be talking about Ronaldo in the same breath as we now do about Cristiano and Lionel Messi. He was that good, wasn't he? I, I, I Personally, I think, you know, in terms of talent-wise, and the, the way he used to finish, yeah. you know, could complete a move, but also he can do the whole lot. In a way, sort of an, an, an amalgamation of Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. He was as powerful as Cristiano, but as silky and skillful as Lionel Messi. For me, he was he was just a, a beautiful footballer to watch. Yeah, original R9. So let's go to, well, it would have been Filbert Street in the 90s, wouldn't it? So, Roger, your Leicester player of the 90s. Yeah, I think it would uh, have to be Steve Walsh, who I think he epitomised. Um, you know, there's this uh, ethos at the club, you know, foxes never quit, which is uh, the words that are above the the, um, the players' tunnel as they go out. And I think he epitomised that more than anyone. Um, actually, I was remembering that there was a game at the beginning of the 97-98 season against Arsenal. <clears throat> um, and Bergkamp famously scored a hat-trick um, for Arsenal. It was at Filbert Street. And his, his hat-trick goal was... Um, was a wonderful goal, very similar to the goal that he scored for Holland against Argentina in the France yeah. 98 World Cup. But um, what people tend to forget is that whilst that gave them the lead, we then scored an equaliser and it was Steve Walsh who scored that equaliser six minutes into injury time. And I, and, and that, to me, completely epitomised what he was about and what Leicester were about then and I guess are about now as well. 
Yeah, no, good choice. We're trying to get him on the pod, actually. We were speaking to Matt Elliott this week as well, so he's going to be on the show possibly next week, another Leicester hero from that era. Outside of Filbert Street, then, uh, who would be your favourite player of the 90s, Roger? I think Franco Baresi. I just, I just, you know, uh, just love the way he sort of could control a game. I also love the way, he, you know, he just seems so dishevelled all the time, wandering around the pitch with his shirt <laughs> out and tucked from his shorts, but yeah. in complete command of what he was doing. And obviously, a, you know, a great player who won sort of many accolades. Yeah, gone both for defenders there, which is quite interesting. You defender yourself? No, I just, I, I, I don't think there was anything sort of. There's no theme there. No, no sort of deliberate choosing of defenders i just like them i guess yeah that's interesting we never it's just defenders is rarer than we have on here but no it's great choices great choices it's good to to hear some new names um but we're now talking about france 98 we've done a couple of these well three of these uh tournament pods before um i like to just start off by just um remembering a couple of nostalgic things because that's what we do on this podcast um i normally talk about music so obviously you know france 98 was synonymous with the rehashed three lions which was never as good as the first one uh, we talked about that on our music pod and the carnival de paris as well i remember that that was a great great uh, tune for the world cup um official one by dario g um i always remember the the airport advert with the brazil team we mentioned ronaldo that was a, another brilliant aspect of france 98 and of course the mascot i'm always talking about mascots on these podcasts they they fascinate me uh footix he was called the the cockerel of, of france he was over everything one of the weirdest looking sort of chicken type things you'll ever see but no always good for world cups and euros as the mascots but we're going to kick off and talk uh england and scotland and uh going into the tournament guys i mean england obviously famously qualified that night in turin with ints and the blood i'll start with you mark i've been going into the tournament how, I mean, I was quite confident, what I remember, with England. That was a very good England team, mix of Euro 96 and, and new young stars. Did you feel the same around that time? Yeah, I think, I think I'm right in saying that England won uh, a mini-tournament about a year beforehand as yeah, well. Yeah, the yeah. The tournament, yeah. Um, probably more famous for, for Roberto Carlos's free kick yeah. uh, than anything else. But obviously, there was there was Paul Scholes made his debut in that tournament um, and, and scored, I think it was against Italy, um, <clears throat> in a 2-0 win. But everything seemed to be just coming together for England at the same time. As you say, the promising youngsters coming through. Um, there were still the old guys, the likes of uh, Tony Adams and I guess Shearer was heading towards that age as well. So, And then, of course, Michael Owen burst on the scene. Mm. And it just felt as if, um, I guess to, to be a bit corny, the, uh, the, the, the stars were aligning for England. Um, but obviously, as we know, it, it, it didn't really work out that way. But going into it, I, I really thought maybe a semi-final wouldn't have been uh, beyond the realms of, of, of possibility. Mm. Mike, the the big story before the World Cup, of course, was already is this one with England, unfortunately. It was the Gaza incident in La Manga where he wasn't included in the squad and allegedly trashed Glenn Hoddle's room of get, once he was told that he wasn't in the squad. Would have you taken Gaza? Do you think Gaza would have made a difference if we'd taken him? Um, I think Glenn Hoddle was looking at someone like Paul Scholes to play that sort of Gaza role in terms of the playmaker role. For me, looking back and remembering, I think um, not taking Martin Keown was probably um, a more more important um, decision by Glenn Hoddle. So I think uh, Martin Keown had come off um, the back of, a, of an outstanding season with Arsenal, and I think that was that was probably more than it more of a um, more of an important decision rather than Gaza. Gaza was so it, was, it would have been the romantic sort of decision to take him and wanting Gaza there, but you know, Gaza for me. It wasn't the right tournament for him. And I could see what Glenn Old was thinking, even though we all wanted Gaza to be there. But he could see that in that team that he wanted to, uh, that he wanted, that he put out, you know, he did see Paul Scholes as, um, you know, sort of the playmaker role and Paul Lintz and David Batty was there as well as, as the midfield enforcers. 
Yeah, it was a well-rounded squad, wasn't it, Roger? I mean, we started the uh, tournament with a 2-0 win against Tunisia. I think early signs were pretty good, weren't they? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that one of the myths, I think, is that that, um, the um, Graham Lasso error that led to the goal that led to us um, finishing second in the group gave us a harder run, um, a harder path in the knockout stages. But I don't necessarily think that's true because had we had we won the group, we would have played Croatia and they were no no slouches. They'd shown that at Euro 96 and they showed that by reaching the semi-final. So, and had we beaten Croatia, I think we would have then played Germany in the quarter-final. Um, so it... it, it I don't necessarily think that um, this notion that because we came up against Argentina in the second round that that had we had it had it gone the other way that things would have been easier for us. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good shout. What I like to remember about France ninety as well because I remember the Tunisia game being like a really random time. It was like in mid afternoon. Yeah. I think there's a couple of these coming up in the Euros actually, um, and I think I think it was said on Twitter by a few of the guys earlier that I remember being at school. And watching it in my assembly, them stopping school just to watch the England game. Was it the same for you guys? Yeah, I remember um, <laughs> it was a physics lesson. I think a, a, a double physics lesson as well, which is just, you know, it's hell basically. Um, but the, the teacher wheeling in the old uh, TV. On oh, the, yeah, you have to wheel it in. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And, and then to, to pretty much a, a mass cheer from uh, about 80% of the, uh, the class. <laughs> Um, to, to watch this England game, and I think it didn't finish until about was a half three quarter, something four, like that. Yeah, it was. Um, it been a really hot day as well. In yeah, France, it was. They played it quite hot weather as well, and it's it's quite red our hot day in uh, in England, especially in the northeast. <laughs> I believe it might have been uh, it might have been sunny that day, but it was a great performance for England to kick off, and obviously, um, Shearer got his goal, um, and and Paul Scholes scored a great goal where it looked as if the ball was almost behind him and he, he hit it on the half turn and curled it past the, the Tunisian keeper. It was a, a great start of the tournament. Mm. As Roger mentioned, we lost the second game to Romania, but he did see Michael Owen score his first World Cup goal. And then this last game against Colombia was David Beckham's free kick, his first goal for England, and Darren Anderson scored as well. Mike, do you, was it at that point you started to see these young lads as, as proper internationals? Definitely. I mean, as, as I said before, I think you, you, we could all see what Glenn Hoddle was trying to trying to build with that team. And you know, there, there was flair, there was um, uh, there was young players, there was experienced players. And, you know, David Beckham getting his first goal, it was, it was quite, it was a great goal. But also, right, he's come of age in terms of being in the England shirt. You know, he, he had, you know, cupped his ears, didn't he, to the, to the, to the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and there was a lot of optimism. I think we, we started to believe then, didn't we? You know, beat, beat Colombia 2-0. Uh, obviously qualified, and we thought, okay, bring on whoever it is. Yeah, and whoever it was, was Argentina. It's a game we've talked about on this podcast before, because taking the result, which we all know aside, I mean, it was one of the best games of the decade, because it had absolutely everything in it. And and I think by, you know, we all say, I think English shaded it, even with 10 men. Um, but let's take you guys back. Let's start with, uh, with you, Roger. I mean, what do you remember about that game, the, the main talking points, of course, but what are your feelings on what is one of the best games of the decade? Well, I'm going to show my age now. I wasn't at school during this tournament. <laughs> I was working. Um, I was working at Sporting Life website. So um, we, we we were actually, you know, this was back in the time when not many people had the internet. But we 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 sort of, despite what other people might say, we were the guys that started live blogging. So mm. we were live blogging this game. And I also remember that our office was um, just as we were um, 
it was it was in Leeds, just on the junction as you come off the motorway into Leeds. It was usually very very busy, but there were no cars whatsoever during that game um, coming off the motorway. But the talking points I think were for me. There's two things that I remember. One is Michael Owens, not his set, not the goal that he scored, but the way he bought the penalty, yeah. um, which was an absolutely disgraceful dive if it was anyone else if it was Ashley Young if it was a foreign player then the press would be all over them but because it was Michael Owen we kind of tend to gloss over that and forget that that penalty was won um sort of duplicitously um and the other thing as well is people forget that Sol Campbell I think people tend to forget that Sol Campbell scored with about 10 minutes to go and the goal was disallowed because Alan Shearer um, went in on the keeper with his elbows raised completely unnecessarily. So things could have turned out a bit differently. And we tend to focus on um, Beckham, obviously, for his petulant kick. but and, and that obviously did, therefore, create problems for England. But we could have won that if, uh, if Shearer had been a little less um, industrial with his, with his arms. Mm. I think even then, I still to this day, I think it was a bit of a harsh decision to to disallow that goal. I think Sol's goal should have stand. I remember celebrating like it still did, um, but I think England were yeah, unlucky. But it was a game with talking points. You mentioned the Owen penalty, but let's talk about the Owen goal because we can't not talk about possibly one of the best World Cup goals of all time. I mean, Mike, do you remember the feeling of seeing this young lad just stroll through that Argentinian defence? I do. I mean, I've seen it plenty of times since, and I just remember it was it was a great pass by David Beckham. And you thought, OK, he's got a defender right right onto him. And he just took it and went and turned inside. Keeper comes out to narrow the angle and he slotted it in the, in the, in, in, in the other corner. And it was, it was just his look. I think he was as surprised as we were. <laughs> yeah. It was just an amazing reaction from, from a young footballer who announced himself on the biggest stage. And, um, yeah, I, I, I agree um, that, that I think the Sol Campbell non-goal was, um, was unfortunate. I do think it was, it was probably a foul. Um, but it, it was it was a match that, that had everything. It was an outstanding game. I mean, if you think about some of the players that Argentina had, yeah. Zanetti, I mean, what a goal that was from the free, that free kick. You know, Veron, Batistuta, Simeone. You know, we talk about England having good players in that in that team, and we we did. But Argentina had, had a fantastic team, also. Yeah, it was a, a, a match, match of, the, the, full of stars. I, just the um, the Sol Campbell goal. I, I watched it earlier today, and. Um, it came from um, it came from a corner by Darren Anderton, and um, all our players wheel off and celebrate. And um, somehow the Argentinians just kick off. They take you know they take the pen, they take the free kick, and they're down the other end of the pitch. And it's Darren Anderton who gets back and stops them from having a shot, which was an incredible run when you think that he he took the penalty in in I think the far corner and the and the shot that he stops was in the was was on the sort of diagonally opposite side of the pitch, which is a you know, he he's an underrated player, I think, and that could have but for that tackle, they could well have scored then. Mm. Yeah, I always remember the headline the next day as well. When we, once the penalty shootout, of course, had happened, was was ten here, uh, one ten lions, one uh, one loser, or something like that on the Daily Mirror, um, which was disappointing for David Ben. But you, Mark, you talked about the the penalty shootout on Twitter earlier. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the two misses from David Batty and and, and Paul Ince, but it was the, the Kevin Keegan quote, wasn't it, on commentary <laughs> that that we all remember that uh, is he going to score uh, Kevin? And he said yes. And obviously, what happened? We know. And then Noel Gallagher taking the right old Mick yeah. on the fantasy football league that night. So it it was such a disappointing end and, and penalties again. But I always think you know Paul Ince wasn't one to take a penalty. Do you think maybe some other guy should have stepped up to the plate? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that was sort of the thing about that England team. There seemed to be a lot of penalty takers at their clubs in in the squad, and uh, especially Batty. I mean, at least Ince had a, a history of scoring goals, whereas Batty, his goals, you know, came once in a blue moon. Um, as a, as a Newcastle fan, I'll say that. I know that from his spell at the club. I think he scored two and uh, probably about 180 appearances for us. And it, just when he stepped up, you, you could just say he didn't look confident. And and, and Batty always struck me as a confident player um, at, at club level anyway. And, and, and with England, he was always a, a dogged and determined player. But as he stuck up, he, uh, sorry, stood up to to take that uh, the penalty. He just kind of he looked to visibly shrink, <laughs> yeah. and 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 it wasn't a great penalty. I think it was Carlos Rua, I think maybe yeah. the goalkeeper. He you know produced a, a fairly straightforward save, but it it was just Keegan sort of oh <laughs> afterwards you know after saying uh, yes he'll score. And, um, but there, there were plenty of players who could have stepped up. But again, I think that the damage certainly psychologically had probably been done during the game anyway because I think England went in into that penalty shootout with the momentum very much against them mm. again it was the dreaded penalties we'll briefly talk scotland as well uh, because they were there at uh, world cup 98 very briefly unfortunately for scotland and i think it was the last tournament they actually made as well and they had a difficult group they opened the games against brazil in the opening game and a late own goal was the, the undoing for them um but other than a brilliantly nice tartened kit it wasn't a great world cup for for scotland was it mike well, they came bottom of the group didn't they yeah <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I do, I do, I, I, I recall the Brazil game because I um, always used to watch the Brazil games, obviously, as as you do as, as being a being a football fan and it being a World Cup. And um, I mean, look, I mean, what was it? 70, they, Tom Boyd scored the on goal, yeah, if, I, if is, I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look at some of their players. I mean, Jim Layton, he was thirty nine years old, really old. Colin Calderwood, thirty three. Tom Boyd, thirty two. Colin Hendry, thirty two. I mean, poor. They, they were going to struggle to get through a tournament, weren't they? Gordon Jury as well was playing. So um, it, it almost seemed like a last hurrah for, 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 the, for, the, for these old boys. And, I mean, coming bottom of the group, it's, it's just a tale of woe for Scotland at, at, at um, international finals, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They were yeah. a little bit unlucky, though, weren't they? I mean, you would have expected them to lose to Brazil and they played well against Brazil. And then they, they, they drew with Norway and they dominated that game, I, I think I remember. And they also had a, um, a penalty shout denied when Gordon Jury was yes. fouled. Mm. Now, if you know if things had gone a little bit differently, they might have won that game. The disappointment, obviously, is that they, you know, they were dire against Morocco. Um, I think if they'd won that game, would, I'm not sure whether they would have gone through, but it certainly would have. It wouldn't have seen so bad. I don't think if they'd not lost that, if they'd won that final game. Yes, and the, the song that came out was "Don't Come Home Too Soon," wasn't it? And unfortunately, <laughs> that's what happened to Scotland. Thanks to Yusuf Chippo and Mustafa Hadji who later went on to play for Coventry, of course. We'll talk more about the later in the tournament and a couple of the other teams that are in the group stage in just a second. But we're just going to switch to today's guest. Uh, he actually played in the World Cup for South Africa, the first uh, World Cup South Africa qualified. He also later played in the Premier League with Shelton and scored one of the best goals of the 2000s era. He's former striker Sean Bartlett talking to us on Alive and Kicking. Sean Bartlett, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Asha. It's an absolute privilege. Great. Great to hear from you. We're going to take you back. Uh, most people um, from the UK will remember you from your Charlton days. We'll talk briefly about them in a bit. But you also played at the tournament we're talking about today at France 98. What do you remember about the build-up to playing for South Africa in their first ever World Cup? Well, the build-up was uh, quite a nervous uh, affair, to be honest. Um, knowing that we were going to participate in our first World Cup... Um, 
making the squad was priority uh, for most players. And when I made the final selection, uh, I was over the moon. You know, uh, as a young kid, you always want to represent your country. And I think the pinnacle is uh, playing in a World Cup. And you opened the tournament against France uh, in because it was obviously in France. How amazing was it to play the hosts? And can you remember what the, the atmosphere was like uh, at the stadium at the time? Well, I think the whole build-up uh, well, was quite amazing. And, and the opening game, um, obviously playing the hosts will always be difficult. And we were quite excited about playing uh, uh, France. Um, and, and also, I think, thinking about it now, after the game, we were quite disappointed with the results. But uh, I think in hindsight, uh, we actually played the, the winners of that particular tournament in the first game. And I think gave us a little bit, I think, uh, sort of uh, consolation that we only lost 3-0. Well, as a squad, how did you see going into the tournament? Because it was your first tournament. There was quite a few players who hadn't even played on such a such a European stage, let alone the big stage like the World Cup. Did you just go into it to looking at, you know, let's do this and make ourselves proud? Or what were the kind of aims for the tournament? Uh, we definitely had an aim. And the first one was to, to get out of the group, um, if possible. Um, I think we sort of gave ourselves a chance knowing that it was France, Denmark, Saudi Arabia and ourselves. And uh, France was going to be the tough one and we just need to get points from the other games but I think when you lose your first game in a tournament it's always difficult to to sort of bounce back um, and, and then the second one we just uh, couldn't get the, the win that we needed but going into the tournament we were pretty confident um, also having won the African Cup of Nations mm. just two years before that um, gave us a lot of confidence and we knew we, we were capable of competing with the best in the world. And you sent the second game was the Saudi Arabia game, wasn't it, um, at, that you played in? And you scored. I mean, there must be an amazing feeling for a player to not only play in the World Cup finals, but actually score. What, what did that feel like? Uh, I think I think the Saudi Arabia game was the last one. And, and for me, I think it was the first game I started in the World Cup. So getting my first goal was uh, yeah, was quite exciting. Um, like I said, besides representing your country and, and playing at the World Cup, you're scoring at the World Cup. And... Then I managed to get two goals in, in the same game. Mm. Um, the second one was one of the situations where we were two on down and got a penalty and nobody really wanted to take it. So I just uh, stepped up and thought to myself, there's nothing nothing else to lose. And, uh, and I took it. And I was very fortunate enough to score two goals in that game. And that pretty much also uh, put me on the international stage uh, as far as European club scouting is concerned. Mm. How good was that South Africa team? You obviously had the big name like Benny McCarthy and yourself, but... How good was the team, do you think, at the time? Oh, it was a very good team. Um, it's a team that I think had 60% of the players, uh, like I said, uh, previous from the 96 squad. And we were together for, for quite a while. Um, the only disappointing thing was the, the coach that got us qualified um, was sacked before the tournament. So mm. we obviously had to go with a new coach. And I think the new coach uh, tried to implement his methods uh, as much as he could. But... It's always going to be tough for any coach to come in and, and sort of with uh, in one month get his ideas across to the squad. You finished your career with South Africa being the second top scorer. How much does, does that mean to you to be in the record books as just behind Benny McCarthy in, in the scoring rates? Well, I think it's uh, one of those accolades you're always happy to have. Um, but for me, it was always just about representing my country and uh, every goal I've scored for, for South Africa uh, was special. Uh, the fact that I ended up as the highest goal scorer until Benny McCarthy uh, surpassed me, I think that was just uh, you know one of those things that it sort of took uh, 
as it came along, but it was never a priority or a goal of mine uh, to be the top scorer of the country. Mm. You mentioned the uh, the 96 African Nations Cup as well. Of course, you won that. Um, it's a big tournament for those for us Europeans. We don't see it as much, but for for Africa, it's obviously their version. How big a deal for you and for South Africa was it to win that tournament? Well, I think it was uh, probably in the same same vein as France hosting the World Cup. You know, it's um, it's always good to host a tournament, but you always you want to do well as uh, as the host. And for us, um, getting off to a good start was also important. Beating Cameroon three 0 and from there also this the self belief grew and. Uh, we as a squad became more confident and we eventually, I think by the uh, last 16, we realized this is something actually we can win. So it was one of those things where you always want to make your country proud and eventually as a team, we started believing that uh, we could win it. And for us as a country, I think uh, like 95 World Cup, it just brought this country uh, more together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just finally on the World Cup then, what would you say, looking back at the 98 World Cup, was kind of the, the highlights for you? What do you remember most from, from that tournament? I think the atmosphere in, in all the stadiums. Um, mm. It's always great to, to play in a World Cup, and uh, I think it just got a different atmosphere, even different to the continental uh, tournaments. And, uh, and I think the, the fact that uh, the travelling that we did as well with France. Uh, sort of complemented um, the tournament itself. So for me, I think just being in, at that World Cup in, in France uh, was awesome. Brilliant. We can't let you go without talking about Charlton um, and that goal <laughs> as well. I know it wasn't in the 90s. It was just we're creeping into the 2000s now. But that, <laughs> that brilliant goal that we yeah. remember against Leicester, the volley. Um, how, did, how did you enjoy mm. your time at, at Charlton and, and what do you remember about that amazing goal? Well, I've, well I'll tell you what. Every minute at Charlton, I totally enjoyed uh, whether I played on the bench, injured, um, just being there and being part of the Premier League at the time, I think it was a great occasion for Charlton as a club and for me as an individual. Um, coming to the club in uh, in the early 2000s and, and then obviously on loan and had to prove myself uh, and eventually getting a contract, it was the, you know, the one dream I was working towards and it took me a while to get to England. But the time I spent there, the six and a half years, uh, was definitely... Uh, the biggest success of my career. And, and it's ironic you're asking me about that goal because it was on the 1st of April against Leicester City in uh -huh. 2001. And that's pretty much, uh, yeah, it's coming up really soon. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, for 15 years since uh, that uh, occasion uh, happened. So uh, a lot of people still remember that. And um, it's one of those proud moments as an individual you will always uh, cherish. Yeah, an amazing goal. Yeah, we'll make sure we look out for the 15th anniversary for that then on Friday. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Sean. Great talking to you. Good memories there from Sean. So we've talked England and Scotland. Let's briefly talk about some other points. I mean, the group, I think the one thing that lacked France 98, especially in the group stage, there was never really any major shocks uh, in the world, in that sort of era of the World Cup in 98. There wasn't a big kind of team, only Spain really in the group stage. And then Spain were kind of in a transitional period after going out of the United States as well. I think that's what lacked in the group stage. But there were debuts, as we said, for South Africa. Jamaica with Robbie Earl and, and the Reggae Boys made their first World Cup appearance along with Morocco as well. Um, but it, was, it wasn't until the latter stages that this tournament really, for me, set alight. And we, Mike, we mentioned Ronaldo earlier. I mean, yes. but you were at France 98. We've got a story that you can tell as well in a minute, which is a lovely story. But you saw Brazil in person. I mean, how good was that Brazil team? And uh, as we've already mentioned, that Matten up front, El Phenomenon. Oh, wow. I mean, um, it, it, throughout, throughout the team, um, you know, they, they, they were fantastic. 
I mean, as I said, Ronaldo was was was, was brilliant, but Denilson had a good tournament as well. That was when um you know he 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 was a good player as well. Denilson, Rivaldo was there as well. Um, it, it was just a wonderfully balanced team that they were hard as well as skillful. And um, yeah, um, I was fortunate to be at one of the games. Yeah, and yeah. Tell, tell your story then of. Uh, so this, you told me this over Twitter and I thought it was a very romantic story and <laughs> at the same time putting football into it as well made it brilliant. Absolutely. Well, um, I decided to, to go across to, because uh, the game was in Paris and I thought, OK, a bit of an opportunity here, hopefully. So um, um, I, I took my then girlfriend with me and um, went, went to Paris, you know, do all the sites and whatever. And I said to, said to Helen, who, uh, you know, my then girlfriend, I said to her, let's see if we can get a ticket for this game. She went, what game? And I said, well, you know, it's Brazil-Chile. It's the, it's the World Cup. And she went, oh, OK. So we went and um, managed to get a, go, grab a couple of tickets. And um, I won't say from which um, FIFA delegation I managed to get their couple of tickets <laughs> from. But let's just say they've been in the news in the last decade or so. And, um, yeah, um, um, when, when I walked in, uh, walked into the stadium, amazing, and um, saw Nigel Spackman sat right next to me. And I walked in, I said, Oh, hello, Nigel. How are you? My wife says, do you know everyone? I went, no, no, he just plays for Liverpool or Chelsea at the time, whoever it was. So we sat there, watched the game. Incredible atmosphere. I mean, um, you know, Brazil at a World Cup. If you, if you ever get the opportunity to go and watch Brazil at a World Cup, it is like, it, 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 it's like, it, obviously football's like a religion to them, but it's also going to see their own country at a World Cup. It's like a pilgrimage, it's like a rite of passage. It was incredible. But the Chilean fans as well, they were excellent. And, now, obviously, the game 4-1, um, Cesar Sampaio, who wasn't a, 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 one of the heralded names, but he, he scored a couple of goals. It's birthday today as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, how is it now? <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> All right. And, uh, yeah, then, you know, Ronaldo scored a couple of goals as well. I mean, it was 3-0 at half time. You know, Ronaldo scored a penalty uh, before Marcelo Salas, who earlier that year, was it that year or was it the beginning of that season? He scored against England, didn't he? Yeah, in February. Yeah, it was in the February. Yeah, really, game, yeah. really good. And, Man United were linked to him and we were like all oh, salivating because he, he was a good footballer. Never made it, of course. Never made it to us. But and then Ronaldo scored um, a fourth goal. He hit the bar, hit the post. And oh, euphoria. It was, it was fantastic. So we came out of the stadium. You know, all the, the, the samba drums are going and the, 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 the you know, parades of people, the colour. You know, lovely evening. Going across um, uh, towards our Eiffel Tower. And I thought, now's as good a time as any. Well, I did. I, I, you know, took, uh, took my then girlfriend by the hand under the Eiffel Tower on one knee, and I proposed to her. <laughs> and um, you know, she said yes, and you know, we're still married. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it was just amazing that the Brazilian and Chilean fans saw what was going on, and uh, they made it like a little party for us. It, it, it was fantastic. So not only did I get to see Ronaldo Brazil at World Cup, great game. Uh, you know, proposed to my then girlfriend, now my wife. Yeah, couldn't, get, couldn't get any better. Yeah. That sounds like the best proposal I've ever heard. I've, you know, that's that's what you want, didn't you? I hope you had a kind of World Cup themed wedding. Absolutely. <laughs> when, when you said that she didn't know there was a game going on, did she know the World Cup was going on? She was aware the World Cup was going on. I'm, I mean, I'm a huge football fan. I mean, my, my wife was an Arsenal fan. I say was. Because, um, converted her. Well, no, I haven't converted her. She just said, I just can't take it because you, you talk about football, you coach football, you podcast football, you write about football, you read about football, you play football, coach. She just she said, you, you've done it for me. I can't, I can't, I can't be doing with football anymore. <laughs> you gave up. You gave up on her. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Great, great story there. And great to imagine it was to be at that World Cup. Um, another team that we've mentioned them already, actually, let's go to Mark and um, Croatia, who were uh, a fantastic run to the semi-final. And they had one Davor Suka, who I've made no bones about on this podcast, a massive fan of Davor Suka. What are your memories of that Croatia team and, and how well they did at France 98? Yeah, it was just how how much talent they had in that squad. I mean, people always go to the, the headline makers, the likes of Suka and Boban and Prozneki. But <clears throat> I always remember uh, Robert Yarny, the, the left back, who I think, did he go to Coventry, but left before he'd even played or something like that, and then went yeah. to Real Betis. Just a, a left foot like a cannon. <laughs> that's, that, that's basically got to remember. And everyone used to talk about Roberto Carlos being this attacking left back. And, and Yarny was kind of in that mould, obviously not as good as, as Carlos, but... Um, he always stood out for me, but the team from, you know, from one to eleven was just full of good players. Obviously, uh, Slavin Bilic, who, obviously, West Ham manager now, and, and Igor Stimak was at centre back with them. Uh, he went to Derby, so it was just full of players and, and the kit as well. And that's a really daft thing to say, but not on this podcast, Mark. <laughs> not on this podcast. The, the the kit kind of just stood out. It was just uh, um, there wasn't really another one like it in the World Cup. I don't think, apart from maybe Jamaica's, which was. Uh, everything you'd expect a Jamaica kit to be. But yes, yes, it was. They, they, they were just a, a great sight to watch. And, and the, I mean, a midfield of Boban and Prozneki, there's only one style of football they're going to play. And it was it was so good to watch. As you say, Suka, just an outstanding striker and um, probably didn't really light up the Premier League when he came over. Yeah. He went to Arsenal and West Ham and it didn't hit the, the headlines as much as what we thought he would. Um, if I can just bring up one random one from the group stages, I always remember the the USA Iran game because yes, of the, the political aspect themed, of it. Yeah, um, and and watching it, and I think the players linked arms before the game and had the photos taken together, and um, it was actually a really good game. I do remember that, but there was just this kind of political backdrop to to what could happen and what might happen in the end. It passed off. Um, with, I think Iran won two one. With was it Madavikia scored? I think they went on to have a good career in in the Bundesliga. Yeah, but I think Iran probably had the worst kit of the tournament. I think it looked like they'd nicked it from the local primary school. It was so badly made. And I think it had Iran written across it as well. It was kind of a talking kit. That was quite a a bad one. South Africa's was also very, very jazzy in typically 90s. I think we had that on Twitter earlier from uh, My Football Shirts. They tweeted a few shirts at us from the World Cup. Croatia, of course, was one of them. Their new Nike shirt as well was absolutely beautiful. Um, I could talk about kits all day. So let's uh, move on. We haven't talked about the hosts and obviously eventual winners. We'll talk about the final in detail in just a second. But Roger, that France team, I mean, it's said throughout that tournament, they got a lot of luck. People have said worse things than that. Um, you know, the, same, the, the game against Paraguay, the golden goal, the penalty shootout, and then the Croatia game where Lillian Turam scored two goals. But that was a brilliant, brilliant French team, wasn't it, Roger? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were a great side. I mean, I think one of the other myths is that they, this idea that they, 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 they played without a striker because Stefan Guivac didn't score any goals. But I think he was, he was actually a little bit unlucky because he was injured in the first game. And, but when he came back... Um, in the groups, uh, not in the group stages. Sorry, in the knockout rounds, um, although he didn't score, he 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 contributed quite a lot to that team because what he was doing was he was he was the first line of defence. He was harrying. I think Amy Jacke has has defended him after the um, after the tournament, saying you know he he harried the defence. He you know broke the lines between midfield and defence of the opposition, and he therefore was where a lot of their success started from. I think the problems for him were that he then. In in an hour perception, he then came to England, played for Newcastle. I think he only played four times, didn't score any goals, and so our perception of him is a is is a failure. But he was, you know, 
he was very good for that France team, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the other thing as well is, I mean, you know, they, they were... Zidane was also crucial as well. And when he got sent off and they were they, they missed him for a couple of games, I think he was missing for the first of the... Well, for the Paraguay game, yeah. I think, the first of the um, knockout games. And they struggled without him. So, you know, you can see how these individual players were very important to that team. But then no, no World Cup winning team really plays well in all seven games, do they? So... No, and they they didn't at all. Um, the other thing you must mention about this World Cup, it's, it's something we talked about on here before. Um, we talked about goals, and Mike, you mentioned him earlier, Mr. Burkamp. Possibly, or we've called it our goal of the nineties, but that goal in the was it quarter final against Argentina. I mean, you can still look at that goal today, and it takes your breath away, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. But also the timing of it. Yeah, right at the end, and um, oh, it's just when, when you're thinking about the pressure, how how long they've played. You know, mentally and physically, they're going to be fatigued. But to ha- you know, as I said, I mentioned him right at the right at the top of the show. You know, my non-Man United player of the player of the nineties. Just the, just the awareness and the touch, and to to take it on his right foot, bounce it. Right, oh, it was just it was just a wonderful goal, and then to slot it in the top left-hand corner. It was um, as um, like, like the Leicester goal, wasn't it uh, yeah. against Leicester? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. very very similar. And you know, he was just a magician. He was in a wonderful game, and I, I think a lot of England fans were happy that he scored that goal. Yeah, well, he knocked Argentina out. And I mean, yeah. I, people talked about the, the touch from Burkham, but the ball from De Boer to, to spot him out, of, I think he was in his own half, possibly even in the fullback yeah. position. It was such a ball. And then and a crossfield pass. It wasn't, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. a wonderful pass. Yes. That Dutch, another, I mean, you look, talk about stars. We talked about the Argentina team and the France team and the Croatia team, but that Dutch team as well. I mean, that was one of the strong, I know they always struggle to get on at tournaments, but that was a very, very strong Dutch team who obviously lost on penalties to Brazil in the semi-finals. Before we talk about the uh, the famous final, there's a few little points raised by a friend of the show, Rob Gallagher, who texted me earlier. Um, I have to put allegedly in the front of a lot of these. So it, it, was, <laughs> the first one is fine. First World Cup electronic balls were used, which is a good fact. And the yeah. first time three subs for a match. But here's where the allegedly falls in. Chuck Blazer in France 98 was fixed as choice for a venue. Again, allegedly. And also the head of the Brazilian FA that uh, my friend Rob was working in Germany at the time, but he told me that Nike were play, paying the Brazilian government £1 million or dollars every time Ronaldo played, hence why he did play in the final. But whether or not that's true, I don't know. But that's talk about the final. You had kind of everyone's kind of second team, as they always are in tournaments, Brazil and the juggernaut of Ronaldo up front. And you had the hosts who had rode their luck to get there, but people were slowly seeing with this team, with Zidane leading the midfield, were going to be a strong... But the match, I mean, it was absolutely... The pre-match was dominated by this complete myth, and we still didn't got the bottom of it, that Ronaldo was playing, he wasn't playing, he may have had a fit, he may have not been feeling well. I mean, Mark, what do you remember about the early moments of, of, of France 98's final? Um, I just remember Des Line. I'm looking really confused on TV. Which is um, hard to do because it's Des. Yeah. He, yeah. You know, he's, he's always, when you think of Des Line, you think of this calm persona and just nothing. Yeah, totally unflattable, but but just panicking and the sheer panic on his face, not knowing what's going on. And obviously, that's, he's trying to relay what's going on. And then I think he might have cut to Gary Lineker with, with someone, I can't remember who it was now. And, and, and then the, the news broke that he was playing after all. And it, it was just a mass confusion. And I think I, I do remember seeing as, as the teams come out, made a point of looking for Ronaldo. And you could tell outwardly there was just something not right there. He, he, I don't know what it was. If something had happened, obviously we don't know. But he, he just didn't look mentally right, I guess. Um, and and as, as shows in the performance, he, he didn't really 
do anything in that final, which was such a shame because he, he lit up that World Cup and and really as as much as we we'd seen at Barcelona, that was where he came to the the world's attention almost um, on on a, on a global scale. He was he was just outstanding, and it was one of the biggest shames of, of modern football. I think that he he didn't perform that World Cup. Obviously, he did later on, um, but but in '98 he was just poor. But I I just that final for me just summed up what that French side were about. They just had a little bit of everything. We shouldn't forget, I think Laurent Blanc missed it through being sent off in the yeah. semi-final. I think Frank, Frank, Frank LeBeuf played. I think he's reminded a few yeah. people of that over the years. Yeah. But uh, am I right in saying that? I think, um, was it Slavin Bilic who dived to get yeah. Blanc sent, sent was, off? Yeah. And, um, it was holding his face, wasn't he? As, as yeah. He collapsed and, um, yeah. And it was, was such a shame because Blanc had had such a big part in getting that mm-hmm. French side to the final. Obviously scoring the golden goal. And I think he may have scored a crucial penalty. Um, in in the the quarterfinal, I think I could be wrong, yeah. but um, the, the Leboeuf, you know, slipped in as much as I hate saying it because I don't really rate him, but he, he did a fine job, and it was just it was a great final, and obviously Zidane, that was when he really you know became what he is now, and it was it was a great final f- for the French, obviously, but just a disappointment that the Brazilians didn't really turn up. Mike, you, we obviously talked about Ronaldo earlier, and as one of your favourite players, do you think it may have, in hindsight, may have been better if he didn't play? Do you think Brazil may have been in better nick because they relied on him so much. But if he wasn't on the pitch, maybe they were giving France more of a game. Possibly. I mean, um, whether he played or not, he, he that would always have been a story. I mean, I, I just remember watching it on TV that um, they, they brought out a team sheet with Ronaldo not on it. Yeah. And then they brought out a team sheet with him on it. And they, that's where the confusion was. And it didn't know where, the, where they stood. And as you said, it was the big story before the game, during it and after. And in some ways, it, it, it shouldn't detract from France's victory because... They, they were brilliant, France. They were they were fantastic throughout that tournament, and you know they deserved their win in the final. Has it has it detracted from Ronaldo as as a player? Would it would it have made Brazil better? Not sure. I think had he not played, he would have been on the minds of the Brazilian team because they were such a close knit team. Yeah, and we, you know we've heard stories. Um, I think he was he, he was rooming with Edmundo, if I recall, and and Edmundo, you know, said 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 since that. Um, you know, the doctor comes in and Ronaldo was a, was banging, banging around or something like that. And, you know, we're, we're never going to know. They're, they're never going to tell us, even if they do know themselves. But, um, yeah, I mean, Brazil effectively were playing with 10 men. You know, Ronaldo was nowhere near um, the level that he was throughout the tournament, before the tournament and, and, and since. And it's a shame. Yes, it, yes. it was a shame. He definitely had a he definitely had a fit, didn't he? And and whether he played or not, I think you know that that fit came I think after lunch on the day of the final. So you're talking what maybe four hours before the game. So whether whether he played or not, those players would have have been through the trauma of of seeing, as you say, one of their close companions or close friends, um, be through that, go through that experience. And I I think that would have been quite traumatic for them irrelevant whether he was playing or not I mean Zico's come out and said that he he didn't want Ronaldo to play he was I think one of the technical directors of the Brazilian team at the time and he didn't want Zico to play and I think it was more about protecting the person rather than protecting the team or you know getting the player to play well the the, the other thing as well is I mean you you, because there was a Brazilian commission wasn't there as a government commission into this in, sure. the, in a year or two after after the after the um the match but um the manager and the doctor have both said you know if we didn't play him you know we we sent him away for the tests those tests came back sort of inconclusive he said he wanted to play if we hadn't played him we would have been we would and we lost we would have been pilloried for not playing him so you, you know you can imagine the sort of 
in a in a country or any country, I suppose, but a country particularly like Brazil, where we where football is a religion, if you're in that position where you've got to make that that this kind of decision, you're you know you've got the weight of the country on your shoulders, and it's going to be very very difficult for you to to leave a player like Ronaldo out. I would have thought. Yeah, they yeah. couldn't win, could they? So say that again, sorry. They could they they couldn't win either way, whether they they played him or exactly. didn't play him. They just exactly. couldn't win. Yeah. Exactly. If they play him and we're all talking about it, if they hadn't played him, we'd be having the same similar conversation. Well, it says a lot that we're, you know, we're you know, nearly 20 years later and we're not talking more about the team that won it. We're still talking yeah. about what if Ronaldo had been fit, what if he'd not played. It says a lot, which is a shame because, again, that French team, you know, they were one of the best French teams we've ever seen. They had one of the best French players who shone in that World Cup final. So that's just the final word on France. Uh, Mark, were they worthy winners of the tournament? Oh, easily, easily. Uh, they were, you know, they kind of built throughout the tournament, and, and as we've said, started fairly slowly. Had a few uh, bits of luck went their way, but for any team that goes through a tournament with a back four of, you know, Turam, Lizarazu, uh, Blanc, and Desai, that that that's a brilliant back four. It's, it's everything with you Bartes could want. As well, yeah. With Bartes, who I always remember the kissing thing between yeah. him and him and Blanc. That was a strange yeah. one, wasn't it? Made you want to um, kiss the bald man ever since. Yeah. <laughs> But I think one of the things with the French team that maybe connected a lot of English fans to them was the fact that they had a lot of English-based players. Yeah. It was the first time, I think from my side anyway, that the, the first time a foreign country had won a World Cup with Premier League players in it, and it almost felt like the first modern World Cup, if you like. And and I just remember Petit scoring and kind of feeling a bit of joy at that. Not that I'm an Arsenal fan by any stretch, but just, uh, yeah, you know, he's he's starring in our league and he's just done, scored a goal in a, a World Cup final. And, but that French team kind of represented what a, a multicultural nation uh, France is. You know, obviously Zidane, uh, yeah, well, Algerian uh, by birth. You had Desai, you had Vieira in there, Senegalese. So it was a, 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 a country, yeah, a country that sort of, uh, sorry, a, a team that summed up the country and what it was about. So it was kind of, Beautiful, for want of a better phrase, in that sense. Yeah, no worthy winners, and it was a good look back, guys, for for a World Cup that was one of the best of the decade. Is there, uh, before we go, I'll just go around to each of you, and there's anything else that you would like to say, memories or anything else about the World Cup, Roger? Let's start with you. Anything else you want to mention about France '98? Yeah, I think there have to be a mention of Jose Luis Chilavert, the, the, the Paraguayan free kick taking goalkeeper. So, um, I mean. I think I'm right in saying he was the first goalkeeper to take a direct free kick in the World Cup and he nearly scored with yeah. that screamer against, was it Bulgaria, I think, maybe? Um, and I also remember when they lost as well um, to the golden goal, he went round to every single one of his teammates and lifted them up, you know, and that, that sort of summed him up, I think. Yeah, no, it was a great character of the 90s as someone we talk about here on a lot as, as well, the goal-scoring goalkeeper. Yeah. Um, Mike, how about you? Anything else from France 98 you wanted to um, get in? Just I think... Um, just the attacking talent, the centre yeah. forwards on show, Klinsman, Beerhoff, uh, Burkamp, yeah, David Suke, Batistuta, you know, even Brian Laudrup, Alan Shearer, Hernan Crespo as well, Patrick Cliver, just, just, just some amazing attacking talent, which, um, you know, obviously m- made for a, a wonderful World Cup. Yeah, no. And Mark, we're going to leave the last word to you then. Is there anything else of France that we haven't covered? Yeah, I've got one player that no one's mentioned yet, but I can guarantee everyone of our age would have tried the skill. The next day at school was Blanco from Mexico. Oh, of course, when, the bunny hop. <laughs> when he did the bunny hop, trapped the ball between his feet and jumped over two players. Yeah, good um, 
just remember that and remember the, the next day at school, playing in the yard or playing on the field or wherever, and literally everyone trying it at some point pretty much sighed down every time they tried it to two steps later. But it was just, a, you know, as I said earlier, I love creative players and I love seeing players do something a bit different. So, and, and that was just amazing to see. It's so simple, obviously, but just to see it was, uh, was amazing. Um, it was just a, a, a great sight. Yeah, it was. And another great kit. I love ending on a kit. Yeah, yeah the Mexico kit had that big kind of warrior face across it and like warrior kind of tribal pattern. Another great kit from the 1998 World Cup. But that's our roundup of another great tournament. Like I said, we will do Euro 96 at some point, but we're saving that nearer the anniversary because, as I said, it's been 20 years since that tournament, even though it doesn't seem that long. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Mark. Thank you for joining us, mate. Thank you. Thank you to Mike. Please do check out Shoot the Defence podcast. We'll put on the link later. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. And thank you to Roger. Please, again, check out the book as well. We'll put it on Twitter later. It's a great read for anyone who's interested in how the football media have changed. Cheers, Roger. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks, guys, for coming on. Um, we'll be back next week. Check out Twitter to see what theme it will be. And again, like I said at the top of the show, if you've got any themes that you want to check out, there's something we haven't talked about already that you're dying to hear from your 90s nostalgia trip, then do get in touch. AK90s on Twitter, on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. But until then, keep it 90s. This podcast is a West 12 Media and Burble Media production. Hey!